This is Classical Ideas with Greg Soden. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. For a long time, I've wanted to discuss witchcraft, magic with a K on the end, and other ancient principles that are still practiced today. I'm also really interested in terms that have tended to make people nervous throughout time. Words like spell, ritual, ceremony, witchcraft, magic, alchemy, or heathen. It's interesting to think about what has been such a big deal about these terms and why people throughout history have suppressed practices of witchcraft and gotten so nervous. I hope this is the first of more conversations that are possible on the history of witchcraft. Today's episode features Danielle Dulski, a witch, author, yogi, and energy healer whose work is rooted in a concept she calls the Holy Wild, which is humanity's deep and embodied feminine connection to the natural world. As I mentioned in our conversation, this was really my first book I've ever studied deeply on these topics. And I had a lot of questions for Danielle about her practices, terminology, her interest in and revisionings of the stories of historically shunned women like Mary Magdalene, Jezebel, the mother of Babylon, Lilith, and Salome, and also the feminine nature of the universe. Danielle Dulski is the author of The Holy Wild, a heathen Bible for the untamed woman, The book is out now from New World Library. This is a really cool book, and I enjoyed reading it and talking about it with Danielle. So please enjoy my conversation with Danielle Dulski. Welcome to Classical Ideas. I'm here today with my guest, Danielle Dulski, author of The Holy Wild, a brand new book out now from New World Library. Danielle, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Gregory. Very happy to be here. Can you just take a moment and introduce yourself to the audience however you see fit? Sure. So my name is Danielle Dulski, and I am a witch, a mother, and a writer and a multimedia artist who lives just outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Very cool. Um, so we're here today to talk about your new book. But before we get to that, I want to make sure that like, we kind of discuss your history and all the things that you are known for before we do that. So if you could just mm-hmm. briefly take me back in time, what was like the first time exposure to witchcraft and magic with a K and how and how did that exposure sort of turn into like a lifelong pursuit for you? Yeah, um, that's an interesting question. So uh, the the first um, kind of magical experience, I guess you would call it, that I remember is when I was very young, I used to dream about dead people. <laughs> I used to dream about my um, my great grandmother who had just died. That was kind of my first memory of just really having her kind of communicate with me in a dream. Um, and it seemed really normal at the time until I started telling people about it. <laughs> mm-hmm, <yeah. laughs> and they made me feel really not normal. Um, <laughs> 
So that was probably my first kind of mystical experience. Uh, and I was raised very born again Christian. So it was church twice a week. And then I also went to a born again Christian elementary school. So it was very, um, very religious, um, kind of all day, every day. And so there was that. And then there was the, you know, the, the experiences with what I would call like early childhood mediumship. Um, and so, you know, kind of a conflict there. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, um, when I was 12 years old, um, I really wanted to do this thing that I kept hearing about called yoga. Right. And, um, my mother thought it was of the devil. So I thought it was really interesting even more so. And then I really had to do it. Um, so my father signed the liability release so I could take my first yoga class when I was 12. And there was this notion that the body was holy and that the body was divine. Mm. And I thought, wow, that's new. I haven't heard that in all of my church going years. Um, so, so I do mark that as kind of a milestone, even though yoga certainly isn't witchcraft, because it was the idea that there was something more, that there was something sacred about the body and sensuality and movement and emotions and all of that. Um, and so then during my teenage years, it was kind of pulling farther and farther away from the born again Christianity in which I was raised and we had this really crazy town. I mean, it's still there. There is this crazy town called New Hope, Pennsylvania. Um, that's very witchy and actually not as much anymore, but it used to be this very witchy town with all of these new age shops with all of these shop owners who were more than willing to share everything that they knew with <laughs> these kind of young and hungry minds like mine. So, um, some of my first teachers were just shop owners uh, cool. in New Hope who who were willing to answer questions, all of my, you know, in hindsight, very stupid questions <laughs> that I had. Um, and then when I was 18, I moved to Ireland and lived there for six months. And that was a very powerful uh, experience because they, you know, they, in Ireland, they have this very strong current of paganism that kind of runs right alongside Catholicism. Um, and there's something very ancient and for me ancestral about that. So, you know, when I came home, it was, it was a new spiritual incarnation for me. And I just started getting more and more into it. And, um, I joined a coven, kind of an informal coven and started being trained. Um, and when I was 25, I had my first son and, I was still very much hiding my witchcraft, but I, you know, I had one of those kind of dark nights of the soul moments where that I think every woman has when, when it's like the middle of the night and they're nursing their baby. And it just seems like the loneliest, um, you know, the, the loneliest place in the whole world. And I just had this feeling like I wanted to, I wanted my son to grow up as authentic as possible. And I didn't want him to have to hide any part of who he would end up being. And yet I was hiding this huge part of who I was. You know, I was casting spells in my playroom. Yeah. <laughs> I was like lying about where I was going when I was going to rituals. Um, so, so that was a big turning point also. So 25 and I'm 38 now. And that was kind of like my big coming out as a witch. I was just like, I'm not going to scream it from the rooftops or anything, but I'm not going to hide it anymore either. Um, 
So, yeah, so so that was a big moment. And um, and then another big moment was when I was 29 and I, I call it my great wounding. So I yeah. think a lot of people have this great wounding when they're 29 or 30. Um, so if you're into astrology, that's when Saturn returns to the place of your birth. And it's kind of like this really profound moment where everything that you think you were kind of dies mm, yeah. <laughs> and you become a new new person so for me my my most pivotal teacher in in witchcraft and also energy work up until that point she was really responsible for kind of bringing down my entire family uh, in this really horrible way. So I got divorced as a result of that. And I lost my teacher and I lost a lot of friends and I lost my pagan family. And I just thought, well, I'm going to be a solitary witch for the rest of my life. And I'm not going to tell anybody <laughs> that I do this anymore. And I moved from where I was living. So I was in a new community then. And I did that for like five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I hit it for like a very brief amount of time. <laughs> and just it just turned out that the community where I was living was this very open-armed, uh, liberal, completely accepting community. And so I started, you know, running very open um, teaching circles and, and moon circles. I started writing a lot more and putting my writing out there. So that's kind of been, you know, this, these last 10 years for me have been very much, um, you know, witch, witchcraft in public, right. <laughs> I guess, which has really been fine. Um, and But I don't take that for granted that I live in a community that, that allows for that, um, because I know that a lot of witches don't. So, yeah. Do so you, that's, that was my life in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. That was great. So I, I was reading a little bit on your website, and mm -hmm. you kind of alluded to this, but uh, your website mentions Irish paganism and Celtic freestyle mm -hmm. Um, what are these specifically? Can, I, can you add just a little more detail to what those two traditions entail? Mm -hmm. Well, I can try. I don't know that they're traditions uh, per se. I mean, especially the Celtic freestyle, which I mean, that was me trying to define the weird practices that I have and what I do. Um, Irish paganism. I'm, I'm very into Irish mythology mm -hmm. and specifically Irish, not so much Celtic, but specifically Irish, which can um, predate Celtic um, traditions even. So um I, I research that and try to weave in what I know, and I don't pretend to know everything. And I'm, not, I'm not a totally academic person, but um, the the Irish pantheon, so the Irish gods and goddesses, are primarily the deities that I work with in my own personal practice. Um, I don't teach them so much, um, but but they are who I work with. I, I don't think that you need to work with deity necessarily to be a witch. So I don't usually, um, I, I don't usually tell you know, newer witches or those who are just coming to witchcraft that they need to find like a, a matron or patron deity or anything like that. But for me, um, the Irish gods and goddesses are uh, very kind of comprehensive in what they represent, and because um, a large part of my ancestry is Irish, and I did you know live there for six months, I do feel like this kinship with them. Um, more so than I might with with other deities in the pagan pantheon. Cool. If that answers your question. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. 
So as I was reading your book, like there's some vocabulary and terminology that I was kind of latching onto that I think that we should discuss briefly. So well, first mm-hmm. of all, we have magic with a K and then just mm-hmm. the terms witch, alchemy, spell, ritual, heathen. So some mm-hmm. of these terms, um, they carry a lot of weight in the history of our country and mm-hmm. they might be scary and off-putting to some folks, but I feel like it need not be so. So what do these terms like magic specifically with a K and then witch, alchemy, heathen, like what do these terms mean to you? Mm. Yeah. So, well, to start with magic with a K, um, that I believe was formalized by Gerald Gardner, um, relatively recently in the 20th century, just as a way to distinguish between magic, what it is that witches do and, magic that magicians might do which is more like illusion or trickery sure um so so that's something that uh you know using the the k in magic that's something i started doing just you know years and years ago because i was told that that was the right thing to do (laughs) it's one of the patterns that we kind of stick with um and then heathen, uh, so so heathen's one of those great words that I do know kind of evokes this visceral experience in people, just like witch and pagan. Um, but heathen, the etymology of heathen, it's just it means dweller on the heath or inhabiting uncultivated land, which is what pagan means also. So it's I'm using it as this this going back to. What, what a witch might call the old ways, but this going back to uh, a felt kinship with the land that would predate any formal religion. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the, the word religion for for a lot of people, it kind of is for a lot of people who have been wounded by religion. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it kind of seems like it's a system or, or there's this very rigid doctrine that you have to adhere to. And for me, and and I can only speak from my own experience, but for me, um, I, my my craft, my witchcraft doesn't seem systematized. Um, you know, I do. I have these patterns that I kind of sink into, but but it it doesn't feel like I need to be confined by any rigid rules. Um, so so for me, heathen, that's what that means. It's this this idea of like going back to inhabiting uncultivated spiritual ground where we are permitted to change our spirituality if we want to um, or or to have those periods of kind of spiritual void where we might wake up in the morning and not feel like building the altar to the full moon, even though it's the full moon or, 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 you know, whatever, whatever we think we should do as witches, those, those days when you just don't have it in you, that that's okay. And it doesn't mean that, well, clearly this practice isn't for me. It just means that, you know, every part about us waxes and wanes and our spirituality is no exception. So, um, I think that the idea of heathen and being uncultivated, it's that too. It's, it's allowing your spirit spiritual practice to have those times, uh, those fallow times where it doesn't feel like um, you need to be just all in all the time. Right. Yeah. So have you come across any situations in your life where people have challenged you because of you using these terms? Like, how do we renorm these things for people who might be freaked out by these terms? Do you have any experience in that? 
Sure. Um, <laughs> I do. Um, I think that, uh, how do we renormalize? Well, well, my, my advice is always, um, to not, um, if you have those visceral reactions that seem more negative towards like witch pagan or heathen or, or magic or whatever, uh, to, to really, examine where those beliefs come from. And if you keep asking yourself, like, what's under that? What's under that? What's under that? Eventually you get to like this root where it's like, oh, well, that's not even mine. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like that's not even my belief where that comes from. Um, So that's usually my, my go-to advice. Um, And I, I also, I just heard this great phrase um, from one of my students and I don't know if she got it from somebody else or whatever, but she said that we we have to try to not speak butterfly to caterpillar people. (laughs) Oh, wow. I just thought that was so amazing. So, you know, it's not that I'm out to convince everyone that they need to be accepting of these terms that I use in my, in my writing and in my kind of everyday spiritual practice. But, um, I think that, you know, for those people that are kind of right on the edge and they're kind of interested in witchcraft, but they're a little bit afraid of it, or they might want to call themselves a witch, but they're not sure that, that, you know, they're the ones that should kind of really dig down and see where the root of those visceral negative reactions are coming from, because probably it's just something indoctrinated that, you know, weaved its way in during childhood that uh, isn't needed anymore. Sure. So check this out. As I was reading your book, I was... Okay, so everything you just said is really interesting, especially the butterfly and caterpillar people. (laughs) Because I've never read a book like this, so I would consider myself, having gone into this book, a caterpillar person. And Mm -hmm. I had to read really slowly at first because this was a new landscape of writing to me. And so as I went through the book, I found myself making new connections and I found myself branching out. So I I felt like I was in the process of becoming a butterfly person as I was reading the book. (laughs) And so I want to talk about this book because this is the first book I've ever read like this. And I'm just thrilled to be able to have this conversation with you about something that is brand new to me. And your book the Holy Wild, a heathen Bible for untamed women, is out now from New World Library. So first of all, congratulations on it being number one in witchcraft and spiritual religion on Amazon. Thank you. That is super cool. Um, and I know it just came out. So what is this feminine holy wild? Yeah, that's a heavy question. I'm so, sorry. I'm sorry. That's okay. <laughs> Thank you for saying everything that you just said. Yeah. Um, I really appreciate it. Uh, so, so holy feminine um, and wild. Let me, let me start with wild. So, so a lot of people hear the word wild and they think that it might mean out of control or immature or emotionally volatile or something like that. Um, but when I use the word wild, what I'm really talking about is is nature and in particular the way nature cycles uh, in terms of the solar and lunar cycles, but also the elements and, and everything about this wild world that we live in. So that's the idea of wildness. Um, And, and in that the Holy feminine, it's like I was talking about in the very beginning about having that experience in a, a yoga class when I was very lo- young, where the, the body was framed as holy and how that was kind of novel and how 
lame it was mm. <laughs> that it was that it was the first time I was hearing that. Um, so the idea that the the body and sensuality and emotions and like in the flesh that all of those things can be sacred is very much one of the hallmarks of witchcraft that we we are of the earth. Um, and we are wild. So, so holy feminine and wild. So where does feminine come in? Well, to me, it doesn't matter whether you call these, these aspects that of society that have been suppressed over time, it doesn't matter if you call them feminine or not, and not everybody wants to, and that's totally fine with me. Um, I know that the polarity of masculine versus feminine doesn't totally serve all of the time. However, there is something to the, 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 the body, sensuality, emotions, um, everything that I'm saying as being feminine, um, because there's there's a real connection between the suppression of the feminine and the suppression of environmental consciousness, the suppression of of women's rights, the the stripping away of of female bodily autonomy, right? So, um, there there is something to that 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 idea that the feminine has been suppressed in the same way that these other aspects of of an earth based tradition have been suppressed. So holy feminine wild, you know, it's this idea that the, the parts of our spirituality that might be rejected in a more patriarchal religion like Christianity, that in witchcraft, they're very much accepted, um, to the point where they're looked at as gateways to, to the divine or to the connect to, to magic, to connecting with the mystery. So, so yeah, so so what I tried to do in my book was to communicate that in a way that was very, um, I hope, accessible, mm -hmm. and and to uphold the reader's embodied experience as divine, you know, whatever it might be as divine. So um, yeah, even if it wasn't beautiful, right? Well, so <laughs> yeah, because reading this as a male, I was like drawn in by like the power of the feminine in the world and how it truly exists in all of us to like varying degrees. And I think that a lot of guys would be really apprehensive to discuss the feminine, like of their nature, so to speak. Can mm -hmm. you speak a little bit about, like, um, like the like a little bit more about that gendered significance of the book and how this book is not just for women, but can mm -hmm. be instead read and ingested by open-minded men too? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I think that that's it. it. It's it's not about to me. It's not about gender at all. So so the masculine and the feminine cycles within all of us, regardless of what our our gender might be. Um, so I do think that, like you said, more maybe more open minded men. You know, men that that aren't afraid of you know the idea that they do have a, a feminine aspect to their psyche. Yeah, <laughs> and that that they they live in this world too. Right. <laughs> Um, that, that certainly they can read it and get a lot out of it. Um, and I, I've heard, um, I've heard a lot from men who, who have read it, who have said similar things where, you know, they kind of initially felt like, oh no, I, you know, I don't want to read a book that says it's specifically for women, <laughs> but, but then they do and they end up receiving, um, you know, receiving this kind of potent medicine in a way they hadn't expected perhaps. So this book, it feels like almost timeless to me. Like if someone handed me this book 
and it didn't have a cover on it. And somebody told me that, like, he, read this portion. And they're like, oh, this was written in 1760. Like, I would be able to believe it. Like, and then if somebody <laughs> told me that it was written, like, in 2018, like, I could believe that, too. So you have, like, almost, like, a timeless style. Like, why do you think that you're able to write a book that feels, like, applicable to any era? Because that's no easy feat. Huh. Yeah. Um, thank you. I, that's like one of the best compliments I've got <laughs> about the book. Oh, you're welcome. I mean, it's true. Um, like, I, I feel like it could be of any era. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess when, when I write anything, whether I'm writing a book or, you know, an, an, an article or a poem that nobody's ever going to read, um, I, I do, I guess, kind of subconsciously almost try to make it um, timeless so that it could meet whoever's reading it whenever they're reading it right in the place where they are without making it seem like, you know, that they're excluded because of, um, you know, that they, that they don't live um, in a really, really rural place on the mountains or that they, <laughs> mm-hmm. they, they, they are a man or, or whatever. Um, so, so I do try to write in a way where um, it's authentic, but that I hope that anyone could receive something from it. Um, so, so yeah, I guess, I guess that that's all I have on that right now, but, but, um, yeah, it's interesting. I, I, I do, I kind of consider myself a storyteller first, um, and kind of witch mother and everything else, uh, second. <laughs> so yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll always be a storyteller. Um, and I am always trying to tell stories that, um, you know, that, that, that'll meet, meet the reader or meet the listener in a place where, uh, in an unexpected place where, yeah. I'm always, uh, I'm always really interested by the decisions that writers make as well in their books. And one question I have is, why did you use the term Bible in the subtitle to the book? Yeah, um, Bible was when I was coming up with, you know, what the title of this book would be. And I did. I came up with the title before I came up with anything else about the book. Um, Bible was the first word that I thought of. And then, you know, Holy Wild was second. So, uh, you know, the etymology of Bible just means book. So there's that. But but there's this there was this kind of anger in me at the time. And this was a couple of years ago when I was sitting on this uh, project and and trying to figure out if it would work. Um, But I did have kind of this anger in me at the time, you know, like, why does a word that just means book? (laughs) Why? Why does that, you know, seem like it belongs to a particular religion? So, Mm. so that was where that came from, you know, this idea like, well, you know, we get to have holy books, too. (laughs) Right. So, so the book is broken down into five parts by the elements of earth, water, fire, air, and ether. So why did you break these down in this way? And are there any like significance to using five books? Like I'm reminded of like the five books of Moses and you have five books. So like, is there any significance to why you broke them down by element and also the number five? Mm. Um, there's no real significance to the number five, okay. other than I do really like that number. Um, but but the elements, yes, the, the elements are kind of a lens through which I see a lot of my spiritual practice, but also the world in general. So 
So it was kind of easy for me to think of, you know, what what will these different books be and and have them be linked to the elements because um, a lot of the work I like I'll I'll see a, a deity or or the chakral system or a spell or the season that we're in I'll see all of that in terms of the elements um, and and I you know I I hope that I I did a good job of presenting the fact that you know the the lens through which I see the world doesn't have to be the lens through which everybody sees the world but in organizing a book it really helps to have kind of this structure and so for me the elements are a very accessible structure I feel like. Most people, you know, if I say earth, there's this felt kind of embodied sense about what that means. You know, earth is heavy, earth is steady versus water is more fluid and and um, changeable. So, um, yeah, so so that was where the elements came from. So something you just said really kind of just jumped out at me as well about mm. um, stories and like the diversity of stories and how like versions of stories can be different for every person. And I'm like really suspicious of one version of truth. Like that's something that just like pervades me as a human. Part of my personality yeah. is that one version of truth just doesn't work for me really. And like my favorite parts of the book are your revisionings of historically shunned women. So you talk about Mary Magdalene in the air section, Jezebel in the ether section, the mother of Babylon in the fire section, Lilith in the earth section, and Salome in the water section. So what draws you to these stories of these historically shunned women? Yeah, um, that's a great question. I'm suspicious of anybody that has one version of the truth also, mm -hmm. uh, or that says they know anything for sure. Um, but yeah, I, I had this experience um, when I was going to Sunday school, and I feel like I was maybe about eight or nine, where I had to, we were coloring, like we would have these... Um, you know, black and white sheets that you would color, right? And and the image was Jezebel being pushed from the window, like mm. the defenestration of Jezebel. And so, you know, I'm really young and, you know, watching all of these young kids like color, color like the, the murder of this woman. Oh my <laughs> and, gosh. and I had the wherewithal to be like, this is kind of messed up. <laughs> 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 and I remember that very vividly. And um, so, so you know, in in looking back at those stories of the shamed women um, and how women have really beca become teaching tools, but, you know, the women of the Bible, the shamed women of the Bible have become these teaching tools for what sin is or, or shame is, um, and very much were for me during my religious indoctrination during childhood, you know, the Mary Magdalene, I mean, she was right. like the worst thing, <laughs> right. right? She was who not to be. Um, and, and, you know, all of that paralleling the fact that asking any questions, uh, particularly when you're a child um, about, you know, God or, or is this really true or like questioning the Bible verses or something like that would be met with such disdain, if not punishment. Um, so, you know, this idea of revisioning their stories, I feel like that's something that I, I almost felt kind of born to do and i know that that's oh sounds, cool um i know that that sounds kind of like i think i'm more amazing than i really think i am <laughs> <laughs> but but i don't mean it that way i don't mean it with with any ego but it just felt um i really felt that i was kind of um vindicating a lot of my spiritual wounds from childhood when i was doing that um so 
Yeah. What did you uh, What did you enjoy about the creative process of revisioning and rewriting their stories? Because those were my favorite stories in the entire book. Mm, yeah. Thank you. That that those were the hardest hardest part of the the book to write were were those revision tales and and I revised my revisions <laughs> ten thousand mm-hmm. times. Um, but yeah, I, I guess I liked the idea of liberating uh, liberating that particular feminine archetype through words or poetry or or maybe just not even that, but maybe just like raising these questions about, oh, maybe what I was told wasn't exactly how it happened. Um, so, yeah, there was this feeling of of. Um, of liberation, both for me, spiritual liberation in the writing, but then also this, um, feeling like I was kind of untying some binds around the, the feminine wound. So you, um, you talk in the book about a concept that I really enjoyed something like called the confining garden and the confining garden is often seen as like for a long time in someone's life, it's like a safe place. And mm-hmm. we face, like we go to this safe place, this confining garden that we don't see as confining, but that we see as safe. So it's like this limiting factor that we can't see is limiting us. And in the book, you discuss writing like your first 10 chapters as they've been lived. So this is like a journal, like a, a, an exercise, a ritual. Mm-hmm. So write your first 10 chapters as you have lived them. But then as you think about your future, envision your future as like an 11th chapter, like as an escape from the confining garden. So it's like uh, looking at your safe places in a new way. Mm-hmm. Do you do you have any like confining gardens that you remember like as a young person? Like what was your like major breakthrough that you had that led you into like your 11th chapter in your life? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think, yeah, I've had I've had many gardens, right? And there's, mm-hmm. there's, there's a line in the book that says, blessed be our many gardens, right? And yeah. I feel like I say that to myself all of the, all the time. Um, but, but we all have all of these confining spaces uh, that um, I, I think the, the most important point of the garden is like the garden doesn't really change, you do, right? So, mm. so as you harvest more, more uh, parts of, of, your soul, whether it's like wounds or shadows or whatever, when you, when you have this expanded self-knowledge, whatever that opportunity is for you to expand knowledge about yourself, then all of a sudden those kind of smaller gardens, they just don't fit you anymore. Like you're almost too big for them. Mm. Um, and so I think, you know, for me, if I have to pick one big one, one big transformation that, that, you know, 29, 30, that age 29 or 30, that great wounding, um, and realizing that, um, in that moment, maybe I didn't need to have, um, you know, my community had become too small for me, even though I didn't realize it until this great injustice happened. Right. Um, or that, that teacher student relationship maybe wasn't working anymore, but I didn't realize it. So, you know, sometimes we, we like accept, nothing less than agony (laughs) right (laughs) to to leave the situations that we're not meant to be in anymore Hmm. um so yeah blessed be our many gardens there you go (laughs) you uh in the beginning of the book you ask the reader so me i was the reader and you asked me to envision myself surrounded by my ancestors as i read 
And this was both a really gratifying line and also incredibly sad because I've moved around a lot and I feel like I've I've lost a lot and it's as if like I've lost like a connection to those ancestors that you're asking me to picture. So like I'm picturing faces Mm-hmm. And, and names that I have not thought about in a long time. And I hadn't even realized that I was missing this connection. So mm-hmm. if you were talking to somebody like me who feels this sense of loss, how can like witchcraft and magic with a K help me mm-hmm. to regain this sense of connection I seem to lose sight of with each passing year? Mm. Yeah, that's a good question. I think that I think we all feel living in this modern crazy world I think that we all feel that loss that loss of ancestral connection um because of everything about our world blocks that I mean we're we're not meant to slow down and we do move around a lot right so so we've kind of been divorced from the land in a lot of ways um So, so what I would say is that that kind of grief that you feel when you start to imagine, you know, your ancestors surrounding you, that that's kind of, uh, 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 not, I don't want to say positive, but, but it's a a kind of necessary, almost first step in, in returning to the magic with a K that's in your blood. Mm. Right. So, so we're all born with these with these gifts that, uh, that are inherited and, you know, we're all born with this ancestral inheritance and it does take a lot of digging and wound work and grief over not having had that before. Um, but it is a homecoming. So, so, you know, for a lot of people, when they come to the craft or witchcraft, they, there is this sense of homecoming, like, you know, they'll, they'll cast a circle or, or they'll just acknowledge the four directions or something like that. And there's this sense that they've done it before, even though they haven't done it before. Um, and it's because a lot of the hallmarks of witchcraft, they're, they're similar to many earth-based traditions. And, we all come from an earth-based tradition if we go back far enough. And there is this, I think, real grief around that. You know, why, why don't we teach our children in schools to tend the garden, to plant seeds, right? Why don't we, we um, protect the, the earth and our oceans more than we do? Um, so there is this necessary grief that comes with that. But, but I do kind of think that it's also what will save the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if we do remember that, you know, we, we aren't above the, we aren't above the elements. They are just as much a part of us as we are a part of them. Um, so yeah. Um, when, once we realize that, then everything will be better. <laughs> so speaking of slowing down, like the rituals you offer in the book um, are very clear instructions to the reader and you invite the reader to slow down and you invite the reader to process how everything you write in the book connects to themselves and you encourage people to write their own mantras and write their own whispered prayers and carve um, symbolically into like forbidden fruit and more. Like there's tons of stuff that you suggest people do and the instructions are really, really vivid. So as you've seen people do these things and you've taught people these rituals and listened to their outcomes, what kinds of changes have you noticed in some of the people that you've mentored? Oh, <laughs> um, I mean, I, well, anything from just these small kind of um, 
you know, these, these smaller changes where maybe they wake up in the morning and they don't check their phone immediately or, or something like that. So, sure. you know, these, the tiny changes to these, to huge changes, um, like, you know, leaving marriages or leaving jobs or, or deciding to travel, um, deciding to have children. So, so, um, but, but, but I mean, I don't, I don't take credit for any of those. Um, and I don't know that the, the rituals themselves would be responsible for any of that either. Um, because like I was saying before, it is kind of like a homecoming. So it's just a, a return to the truth of, of who you are, um, uh, mm-hmm. that does require a slowing down. So, you know, the rituals and the ceremonies, um, they, they do, even though they're relatively simple, I think they, they do require that you, uh, take time out of your day and be really present, uh, instead of screen bound. Um, and just that is everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so rituals and ceremonies do make, make things important and serve to mark transitions. Um, and, and that's a spiritual practice kind of in and of itself. But even just taking the, like a few minutes to stop and be and, and not be thinking about your to-do list or regretting what you did yesterday, um, you know, major life changes come out of just that. Yeah. <laughs> like and, and in the book, like, every one of the things that you offer, like they'll lead to different results. So like whatever you write and whatever I write and whatever my friend writes, these are all going to be very different. So these practices are going to look different for each person who does the rituals that are in the book. So that must be okay then that it's not like a sort of standardized practice. Like we're not all saying the same prayer. We're not all doing the same prostration. It looks different for every person. Is that okay? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. I think that, you know, any any words that that I write, you know, they're they are going to hold specific meaning for me and they're not going to mean anything to some people and and that that's fine. So so why would our prayers be any different, right? Um so when people write their own prayers or or invocations or chants or their own rituals that that means so much more than it would if you were just copying something out of a book. Um, and so for me, the best rituals and ceremonies that I might find in a, in a book or in a reference book are the ones that allow just like a little bit of wiggle room where you're not totally taking away the autonomy of the practitioner because, because everybody's craft, everybody's spiritual practice is going to be different and unique, just like we are. So, and to me, this book like kind of tells the story of wounding and healing. Do you see it that way? Yeah. Um, to a point, I, I think that um, for me, the best def- definition of healing is all of healing is just awareness and integration. So it's never about fixing anything, <laughs> mm-hmm. unfortunately. It's just kind of like, I know this about myself, and now I'm going to integrate that knowledge into what I would call our light of day personality. So I'm going to stop ignoring that wound instead of putting a bandaid on it, I'm going to, in, I'm going to use that wound as kind of a power source. Right. So, um, so in that way, I think it is a, a book about wounding and healing, but, but not healing, like, you know, making everything perfect and better or go or returning to some, you know, more, more perfect state. It's more, it's more about looking at looking the wound, like in the eye and being like, I see you and I'm going to, use you because you're mine now. (laughs) Yeah. 
So I have one more question about the book, and then I want to ask a few simple questions before we wrap up today. Um, mm-hmm. So what is the Red Road Journey? I was reading the conclusion, and I was really captivated by the phrase Red Road Journey. So how are we all on this, whether we realize it or not? Yeah, it's interesting. So the Red Road is something I had a dream about years ago, that, and it's it's not just a Red Road. It's kind of like the spiral spiral red road that kind of goes down and then back up again. Um, so in that way, it's almost never, never ending. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so that was where the metaphor came from that that I was using in the book, this idea of the red road is everybody's spiritual journey that kind of has no beginning or end. It's just always ongoing and that the journey is where the magic is. Um, but then somebody told me, um, it was like right when the book was coming out. So, so maybe just a few weeks, three or four weeks ago, um, that the red road is, is, uh, very, very much in native American mythology. So different tribes use this idea of the red road, which I hadn't heard before. Um, and I haven't had a chance to kind of research that and see if there's any parallels, um, um, because I want to be careful of appropriating that because I have no native blood in me. Um, but yeah, so, so for me, this red road, red is the color of soul for me. It's, it's the color of the root chakra. It's very primal. Um, and then this idea of a road that doesn't really go anywhere. I mean, there, there's no destination, I think. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, even in spiritual traditions that have reincarnation, there's this idea of like, there's a, there's an end point, right? We reach nirvana or or we strip away all of our karmas. Eventually we learn the lessons that we're meant to learn. And I just always wonder if like, that's not it. If like, even that's kind of linear thinking, right? So what if we're just here to like, be here? (laughs) Right. I know it sounds like I'm like stoned or something. I think that uh, <laughs> I think Kurt Vonnegut once said that the purpose of life is to fart around. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like, what if there is no goal? We're just here to like walk this spiraling road that doesn't really go anywhere. Um, and I'm not saying that in like an existential kind of depressing way, uh, because I think there's a lot of magic here. You know, there's a lot of pleasure and. Um, and hedonism and and you know like what if that's all what it's all about (laughs) yeah so i kind of want to talk a little bit about just an ordinary day for you so as a witch yogi practitioner of magic mother partner what does like an ordinary day look like in your life like take me through a normal day from wake up until bedtime yeah so um the days now are relatively atypical because I've been traveling so much and my schedule's kind of yeah. completely been disrupted. But but a typical day. A boring um, one. Yeah, give me a normal A boring one. day. Okay, a typical boring day. I would um, I would wake up uh, if my kids are here. And so I have my kids half the time. So if my kids are here, I get the kids to school. Um and my, you know, my partner helps with that. So, so he's here too. And then after the house is empty, so around nine or 10 AM, then I do have a room that's kind of my own that's in the front of the house. Um, and so I'll go there and I'll spend sometimes just 10 minutes, right. But sometimes longer, an hour or two, um, moving and it is moving through what I call body prayer. So, so this is kind of unique to my own witchcraft where I try to, um, 
move in a way where I can feel magic in my body. And so that, that looks different on different days, but, um, so kind of linking my sacred practice to movement. So I'll try to stay in that for as long as I have. And, um, like I said, sometimes that's a very short amount of time. Sometimes it's longer. Um, and if there's spell work to be done, I'll do it then also. And then, the rest of the day, um, I'm probably writing or I'm preparing to teach or I have an interview or something right. like that until just maybe two, two o'clock or so. Um, and then before the kids get home, I do try to um, go for a walk with the dog and my partner because um, after the kids get home, it's all over. <laughs> <laughs> the kids get home from school yeah. around three and, um, and then like, if it's a weekend, then at night I might have like a ritual to go to or something. But during the week, I think it's, um, I'm pretty much like everybody else. I mean, I'll watch some Netflix and <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> yeah, I just finished, uh, the haunting of Hill house. Yeah. See, we're halfway through. It's so good. Oh man. It's great. So yeah. as the mother of sons, you you mm-hmm. had this book about um the untamed um like feminine as the mother of sons how do you carry these teachings into that aspect of your life working with young men yeah any way i can yeah <laughs> it's uh it's interesting like i i was just talking to a friend of mine who also has two boys and we were talking about like you know if we were to have another baby and it wasn't a little girl, we'd be really upset. (laughs) And then we decided that we're not even going to try. But then, you know, the conversation really drifted to like, you know, as, as the mother of girls, which we weren't, we would be so different. We would be so like fiercely protective, I think in a different way. Um, And my, my example was my, I have a 12 year old son, right. And he just went on like his first date and I was like more worried and protective of this anonymous girl that he was going on a date with, (laughs) like just to the ice cream parlor. Like I was more like, well, how is she getting home? Like about then I was about him. Right. (laughs) And, And I thought like that would be exhausting if I had to be that way with my own daughter all the time. So So as the mother of sons, what I've always tried to do is to like not save any of the, I mean, maybe I would call it wisdom, but like not save any of the advice or the instruction that I have for later that like, if I think of it, even though my youngest is only nine right now, I try to like say it right then so that I don't, you know, try to put it off for some date where some, some invisible date in the future when I think they're mature enough to handle it or whatever. Um, so, you know, they've always, in terms of witchcraft, they, they've always done these kind of mundane practices with what I would call mundane practices with me that they think are, are kind of fun. Like they know how to cast circles and things like that. Uh, but I've never tried to indoctrinate them into witchcraft because I wish that I hadn't been indoctrinated into Christianity when I was younger. So in terms of spiritual practice, I hope that, you know, I've I've framed nature as sacred for them. We we try to take them out into the mountains, into the ocean, let, let them see all of these different um, natural places that are really beautiful. And, and that I hope that they kind of absorb this notion that they're holy without calling it holy. Um, and I kind of think that's good enough for now. (laughs) Yeah. Nice. Yeah. 
Um, so I know uh, I haven't read your first book, but I know you have a first book as well. Um, to anybody who's just now being introduced to you, would you recommend going to your first book first before the Holy Wild or does it not really matter? I don't think it necessarily matters. Um, my first book, Women Most Wild, I think is kind of a, a more general overview of witchcraft mm-hmm. um, versus the Holy Wild. Um, you know, there's rituals and ceremonies in there for sure, but it's more about like framing the, the individual reader's story as holy and important. So so I don't think that one necessarily is um I mean, they are connected, but I don't think they need to read the first book before moving on to The Holy Wild, for sure. Well, Danielle Dulski, this has been a wonderful hour together. Where can people find you if they want to dive more deeply into your work? So my website's uh, danielledulski.com, so just my name, and I try to keep it pretty up to date. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's a good site. Yeah, thank you. And um, on Facebook, uh, I have a business page on Facebook. And then my Instagram is at Wolf Woman Witch. So awesome. any of those would be good. Yeah. Very cool. Daniel Dulski, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Gregory. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Strybig. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you like this show, please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at classicalideas@outlook.com, or find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash classicalideaspodcast. Thanks so much for listening.